We're going to be starting in First Clement, chapter 13. Uh, it starts off with a quote from Jeremiah. He says, Let us therefore be humble, brothers, laying aside all arrogance and conceit and foolishness and anger, and let us do what is written. For the Holy Spirit says, and this is how, this is how the apostles talk, when they say the Holy Spirit says, when they are speaking of the prophets, the Holy Spirit is being used as a circumlocution for the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord that speaks through the prophets, just like in the New Testament. It says, for the Holy Spirit says, and now he's going to quote from Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast about his wisdom, nor the strong about his strength, nor the rich about his wealth, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, that he may seek him out and do justice and righteousness. So there's going to be a lot of these citations from the Tanakh tonight. We're going to have a lot of citations from the Tanakh, uh, more than ordinary. And so we'll be able to move pretty quickly. Because I hope that these passages, these passages that we're going to look at, that Clement is bringing out, they should be well-known scriptures. And you might, as you're listening to them, because they are well-known scriptures, you might say to yourself, hmm, never quite heard it put that way. I wonder what version that is. And the answer is, it's the Septuagint. Clement is, is writing from, he's using the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek translation, as his Bible. That's what you're hearing there. You're hearing Septuagint renderings of the passages. So he's, he urges us to be humble on the basis of this passage that says, you know, don't, don't, be, don't boast about your wisdom or in your strength or in your wealth, uh, but boast in the Lord. And he's, then he goes on and says, Most of all, let us remember the words of the Lord Jesus, the words of our Master Yeshua, which he spoke as he taught gentleness and patience. Yes, that sounds good. We should remember some words of Yeshua. But here's the really exciting thing. Uh, because what we have here now is a string of sayings of the Master that really are non-canonical. They are, I'm calling them, I'm going to make up this adjective, a graphical. They are agrapha. They are sayings of Yeshua that existed in oral tradition among his disciples that didn't actually come to settle together, at least, as one unit in the New Testament. So you have to remember how this, how um, in those days, uh, in the days of the apostles, there were no uh, written Gospels until Mark wrote his Gospel and Matthew wrote his Gospel. But prior to that, all of the teachings of Yeshua were oral traditions that were just repeated and repeated. And that was the main job of the disciples, of the 12 disciples, was that they were the custodians of the teaching of Yeshua, right? And so Clement is a disciple of Peter, who is one of these custodians of the teaching of Yeshua. So we have here a beautiful saying of the Master. You'll recognize it. When I, now when I read it, you'll say, I think that is in the New Testament. Uh, here it is. Show mercy so that you may receive mercy. Forgive that you may be forgiven. As you do, so shall it be done to you. As you give, so shall it be given to you. As you judge, so shall you be judged. As you show kindness, 
so shall kindness be shown to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, it's true. Several of these do appear in the New Testament, but they're scattered around. They're not in one place. They're not strung together like this. And then there's several of them that do not have a direct parallel uh, in the New Testament. And so what I did was I listed some of these out on your on your handout so that you could see some of the parallels in the synoptic gospels like Luke 636 636 be merciful just as your father is merciful or Matthew 5 7 blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy or Matthew 6 14 if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will forgive you or Matthew 7 12 whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them or Matthew 7 1 for in the way you judge you will be judged but you'll notice that none of those exactly correspond to what we have here in Clement. And those are all from different places. This sounds very much like it was meant, as Clement, as Clement gives it to us, it sounds very much like it's a unit that was meant to be tied together. All of them follow the same formula. Do X, that X might be done to you. All of them follow that same formula. And they're tied together then for easy memorization. This is the way that an oral tradition would be handed on. So I'll read it to you one more time so you can enjoy it one more time. And then we'll move on. Show mercy that you may receive mercy. Forgive that you may be forgiven. As you do, so shall it be done to you. As you give, so shall it be given to you. As you judge, so shall you be judged. As you show kindness, so shall kindness be shown to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That last one, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, also appears in Matthew. Matthew 7, where it says, For in the way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's uh, Matthew 7, 1 and 2, or something like that. But that one is the, that's the key. These are all sayings that are built on the Torah principle of eye for eye. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, those sayings are called mita connected mita sayings. They are, which means measure for measure, measure for measure. And this is a biblical principle of justice. It's the biblical principle of justice, measure for measure, right? And so mita connected mita, a mita is a, is a measure, and connected is opposite, so it's really saying measurement opposite measurement. And the idea is a, a pair of balance weights, like two scales. You know, whatever you put in one side, to bring the scale back into balance, you have to put the same amount into the other side of the scale. Right? What Yeshua is teaching is sort of a reversal of that, that idea. Whereas uh, in the meter connected meter uh, approach, it's like um, it's punitive. It's like you poke up someone's eye, you're going to get your eye poked out, you know, uh, whether by the court on earth, meaning uh, that you'll have to pay compensation for an eye or something like that is the way the rabbis ad uh, adjudicated that, or from the court in heaven, everything is based on measure for measure. God's justice system is measure for measure. Our master says, we can exploit that. We can turn that principle by which God runs the universe to our advantage. Show kindness to others. And measure for measure, 
kindness will be shown to you. And be merciful with others, and measure for measure, mercy will be shown to you. This is a big teaching of his. A lot of his parables center around this idea, particularly as we get into the high holidays, this becomes a really important theme. This idea of be merciful to others, that mercy might be shown to you, uh, and forgive others so that you will be forgiven. Of course, Judaism teaches these principles. This is not unique to Yeshua. He's not the only sage that taught this. And this is why we're in this season right now, this season of repentance, where the main thing is to reconcile relationships and to forgive others and to be forgiven prior to coming into judgment before Hashem. As Yeshua says, if you forgive others, Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. So he, sum, he summarizes this measure for measure, this principle of Mita Kenegad Mita, saying, with this commandment and these precepts, let us strengthen ourselves that we may humbly walk in obedience to his holy words. For the holy word says, upon whom shall I look except the one who is gentle and quiet and who trembles at my word. You know, that is from Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, we hear that every Rosh Chodesh, when, it, well, I mean, when we happen to be here on a Sabbath and it's Rosh Chodesh, um, we'll hear that in the Haftarah reading for a new moon. This is how I paraphrase it. Who is it that Hashem pays attention to? In other words, who am I going to pay attention to? Who am I going to worry about? Who am I going to intercede on behalf of? Uh, the one who is gentle and quiet, lowly and meek, and who trembles at my words. That's how it says it in the Hebrew too. Trembles at my words. The, the Hebrew word for tremble, do you know, anybody know what that is in this verse? It's harad. Harad. So have you heard of the haredi? Har, haredi is just is the, is the way you say, like we say orthodox, orthodox Jews, right? Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews never call themselves orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews, to be an, that's a name that other people have put on Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews call themselves Haredi, which means tremblers. You know, what is it when someone trembles at, at God's word? It's like it takes God's word seriously. I'll tell you a parable. I was just, it's fresh in my mind because I was just working on this. It's something else, totally unrelated. Two sisters. This is a parable of the Chofetz Chaim, by the way. There's two sisters. One of them marries a rich man. One of them marries a poor man. The one who marries a poor man, he's a good man, you know, but he doesn't get any richer. <laughs> the one who marries a rich man, he gets richer and more powerful. One day the poor sister decides to visit the rich sister, and she comes to visit the rich sister. She comes in the house, and there she you know, arrives at the mansion, and there's the, the butler, you know, the porter who announces her, you know, and that's sort of, she walks in, and she walks in, and she's like looking around, and there's these enormous expensive paintings, and these rugs, and all this ornamentation. This queen comes gliding into the room, you know, and she's wearing all these jewels, and fancy dress, and frills, and everything, and and the poor sister's like, wow, is that my sister? She looks like a queen, you know. She's just like totally blown away. So the two sisters eventually get to sit down and start to talk. And the poor sister as it says to the, to the rich sister, she says, I have to ask you something. Why, uh, and please don't be offended, but why do you look so sad? 
Because you have all this. It looks to me like your husband would give you anything you want, any time. Why, why do you seem so sullen and so sad? And she says, it's true. I'm, I'm not happy. Even though my husband gives me all these riches and these dresses and these jewels and everything, I'm miserable because he doesn't listen to me at all. He doesn't respect me. He treats me like a maidservant. He embarrasses me in front of people. He uh, doesn't treat me with dignity. He, he basically spits in my face. You know, he treats me like I'm, I'm a servant. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't listen to me at all. And she says, I'd, I'd rather trade places with you because even though you don't have anything but the dress that you're wearing, you have a husband who, who listens to you and, and respects you and treats you with dignity. All this means nothing if I don't have dignity. Now, here's the meaning of the parable. So, the Chofetz Chaim says, the two sisters are Torah scrolls. The rich sister is a Torah scroll in the synagogue with all the baubles and the ornaments and everybody, you know, the nice mantle and the crown and everybody comes, you know, makes a big to-do about the Torah. You know, here comes the Torah, ki mitzion, and it's all this like pomp and majesty and and but you know, and everybody's hovering over the Torah, you know, this sort of thing. But nobody is actually living in obedience to the Torah. So the Torah is saying, you know, you give me all this wealth and all these riches, it doesn't mean anything to me. You're not doing anything I say. You're not listening to me. You don't treat me with any dignity, you know, no respect. Whereas over in this other other synagogue, this poor synagogue, you know, the people don't have that kind of money or anything, but they're poor people, they're simple people, and they still take this Torah seriously. They haven't bought into the Enlightenment. They haven't bought into Reform traditions and and conservative traditions. You know, they're just still like, the Torah says, keep the Sabbath, so I keep the Sabbath, you know. Who who actually takes takes it seriously. Clement goes on and says, Therefore, it is right and holy, brothers, that we should be obedient to God rather than follow those who in arrogance and unruliness have set themselves up as leaders in abominable jealousy. What's he talking about? So we're back to the situation in Corinth. These leaders who have set themselves up in unruliness, these schismatics, these um, mutineers, these uh, young upstarts who have thrown off the old leadership, run out the old bishop and the old uh, elders and... uh, put themselves in power, in abominable jealousy, that zealotry. For we shall bring upon ourselves no ordinary harm, but rather great danger if we recklessly surrender ourselves to the purposes of men who launch out into strife and dissension in order to alienate us from what is right. In other words, if we associate ourselves with them and we obey them and we accept their leadership, we're going to become like them. So, so what's he, what's he suggest? Well, according to the way Lightfoot puts it, he says, let us be kind to them in accordance with the compassion and tenderness of him who made us. So it's a different, not what we might have expected him to do. You might have expected him to say, Let's, let us drive them out and discipline them. And uh, he says, let us be kind to them in accordance with the compassion and tenderness of him who made us, of, of Hashem, that is. For it is written, and here comes some more citations, the kind shall inhabit the land, the innocent shall be left on it, but those who transgress shall be utterly destroyed from it. So he wants them to be the ones who are utterly destroyed. This is actually the way he's proposing conducting warfare against them. It's by being kind, so that the old guard remains 
the new guard is utterly destroyed. And again he says, I saw the ungodly lifted up on high and exalted as the cedars of Lebanon, but I passed by him. Behold, he was no more. I searched for his place, but I could not find it. Guard innocence and observe righteousness, for there is a remnant for the peaceful man. It's a really different rendering of this psalm, but that's Psalm 37. So what is he saying? He's saying, he's saying these people, they're not going to last in their haughtiness and their pride and their arrogance. They've set themselves up. They're not going to last in these positions. So you know, don't become attached to them and associated with them. You know why this is so great, why studying Clement is so great? And people would be like, studying Clement, you know, and it's like, that's not in the Bible. There's so much Bible in Clement. There's more Bible in Clement than in an ordinary book of the Bible. <laughs> well, there's more Tanakh in Clement than an ordinary epistle. Put it that way. You're, you're, in, the, you're in the Tanakh more, in, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the Torah, when you're studying Clement. Chapter 15. Therefore, let us unite with those who devoutly practice peace. So this is in contrast to verse to chapter 14, where he said, let's not follow those who in arrogance and unruliness have set themselves up. Instead, here in chapter 15, let us unite with those who devoutly practice peace and not with those who hypocritically wish for peace. Because, of course, everybody says they're for peace. I mean, the new leadership in Corinth isn't up there saying, hey, we're for discord. Let's have more discord and strife. You know, everybody was all about peace. Always. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? It says, for somewhere he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Where is that? Somewhere. That's Isaiah 29, 13. And again, they blessed with their mouth, but they cursed with their heart. Again, he says, they loved him with their mouth, but with their tongue, they lied to him. Their heart was not right before him, nor were they faithful to his covenant. That's Psalm 78. Therefore, let deceitful lips that speak evil against the unrighteous be struck dumb. Psalm 31. And again, may the Lord utterly destroy all the deceitful lips, the boastful tongue, and those who say, let us praise our tongue, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. Because of the misery of the needy, because of the groaning of the poor, I will now arise, says the Lord, I will place him in safety, I will deal boldly with him. Psalm 12. So there we just had a run of sayings from the Psalms and from Isaiah regarding peace and distinguishing between those who are actually for peace and are peacemakers and those who are just saying they are for peace. Have you ever noticed it? Have you ever noticed the difference in a conflict between those? You can tell that there is a difference in, in the spirit of people. If someone is really for peace or someone is really... Yeah, everyone on the internet is like kind. <laughs> and if they say anything rude, they... Add that little icon at the end, the little emoticon, the smiley face, you know, just sayings all. <laughs> yeah. I don't do that, that internet thing with the talking with people on the internet or, <laughs> yeah, I don't do that. All right. Chapter 16. For Christ is with those who are humble, not with those who exalt themselves over his flock. 
this is a, a, a principle of leadership that Yeshua taught. And Clement's just reflecting a, a saying of Yeshua. I put this, and Yeshua teaches this several times over. I put this on your sheet. For example, Luke twenty two twenty six. The master says to his disciples, he's talking about leadership. He's talking about taking on leadership roles. He says, the one who is greatest among you, that's among, among the disciples, must be like the youngest. In other words, the least important. And the leader must be like the servant. So the one who's the top dog, his attitude must be like that of a servant. So Clement's saying, someone comes along, they exalt themselves over the flock. They're shaking their stuff around. They're like, hey, I'm I'm the big cheese here. You know, that sort of thing. It's like, this isn't appropriate for disciples of Yeshua. The master is not with the one who's arrogant. And it reminds me of the, the passage in Isaiah uh, 57, 15. It says, you know, I'm high and lifted up, but I'm with the one who's lowly in spirit and contrite in heart. And in verse 2 of chapter 16, he says, The majestic scepter of God. Our Lord Christ did not come with the pomp of arrogance or pride, though he could have done so, but in humility, just as the Holy Spirit spoke concerning him. For he says, Lord, who believed our report? And to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? And then he goes on to quote the next 12 verses of that passage from Isaiah 53. And it's really interesting because although this uh, passage obviously is, uh, it informs so much of the New Testament, it's behind the theology of Yeshua in the New Testament, this whole passage in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the song of the suffering servant, it's, it's all over the place in little allusions here and there, maybe a little quotation, you know, you get a little quotation over here, a line here, a line there, but nobody ever quotes the whole thing like this. Instead, all the to, to all the apostles, it's just so much a part of their psyche. It's so, it's like you don't have to say the whole thing. But Clement, he just, he, he cites the whole thing. That's kind of unusual to me, but it's nice. And then he goes on in verse 15, he finishes up with the, Isaiah 53 passage, and he goes on in verse 15 to quote Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is another of these psalms that is just, they just, it permeates the New Testament, particularly the gospel narrative. It's about, it, particularly the passion narrative, the crucifixion narrative. Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Psalm? You know, you know the imagery from my hands and my feet, uh, they have pierced, you know, strong bulls of Bashan surrounded me. And, and all of those passages that are coloring the crucifixion narrative, the passion narrative. So he quotes from this one and he says, and again, he himself says, meaning Messiah, and he says, Messiah is saying this, but he's quoting from Psalm 22. I am a worm. And not a man, a reproach among men, and an object of contempt to the people. All those who saw me mocked me. They spoke with their lips. They shook their heads, saying, He hoped in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him save him, because he takes pleasure in him. He's given us these two examples, these two strong citations, one from Psalms, one from the prophets, of the attitude of the Master the humility of the master. He could have come in pomp. He could have come in arrogance. He could have come in pride. But he came in humility. And here's the passages to support it. Boom, the suffering servant, the lowly suffering servant. Then Psalm 22, I am a worm, not a man. I'm, I'm mocked. I'm ridiculed. He says, so his conclusion then in verse 17, he says, you see, dear friends, the kind of pattern that has been given to us For if the Lord so humbled himself, 
What should we do who through him have come under the yoke of his grace? So there's not room for a disciple of the master, somebody who calls himself a disciple, to be, you know, all this hot stuff and this, uh, you know, haughty and um, subjugating people and lording it over people, as Yeshua would say. I want to go back, though, to verse 2 before we leave this chapter and deal with this majestic scepter of God. Here's what it said in verse 2. It said, The majestic scepter of God, our Lord Christ Jesus, did not come with pomp of arrogance and pride. This is a title that I have never heard anywhere else for Messiah. The majestic scepter of God. What is the majestic scepter of God? The scepter will not depart from Judah. That's in Genesis. Uh, And we find... In fact, as we start to look more closely, we find this comes up over and over and over again with these with the messianic connection. For example, Psalm two, but they're not all they're not all this, the word scepter. Some of these in, some of these are shevet, some of these are mate. Most of them will be shevet or mate, which can mean scepter or staff or cudgel. Another, I think, another way you could translate it is cudgel. <laughs> the the iron rod, like in Psalm 2 here. It says of the Messiah in Psalm 2, You shall break them. You shall break the nations with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like pottery, like earthenware. I gave several other examples. You could look these up sometime. You should look these up sometime uh, on, on your sheet. Uh, you've got Psalm 45, verse 6. I think that's maybe the key. Yeah, Psalm 45, verse 6. This is important because this one gets quoted in the book of Hebrews too. We saw this already in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, when we were learning Hebrews. And uh, of course, there's this relationship between Clement and Hebrews. And here's another place. Your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Clement is using this messianic scepter imagery, like Psalm 110, for example where he says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. All of the Hebrew words for scepter or staff or rod or cudgel, however you want to translate it, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There you've got two different Hebrew words. Ordinarily, the Septuagint translates them all with the Greek word rabdos, rabdos, which is a scepter. And that's what Clement uses here, your majestic rabdos. So he's taken all of these prophecies from Psalm 45, from Psalm 110. You find them in Micah chapter 7, Jeremiah 48, and I could have listed many more on your sheets. He says, the majestic scepter of God. The majestic scepter, this is a title for the Messiah himself. We're going to move on to the next chapter, chapter 17. Let us be imitators also of those who went about in goatskins and sheepskins. What does this mean? Those who went about in goatskins and sheepskins. All right, so here we have what our translator assumes to be a quotation from the book of Hebrews. This is a quotation from Hebrews 11.47. Or perhaps it's a quotation from something else that both Hebrews and Clement are aware of. I'll just drop into verse 32 here. This is in Hebrews, okay? I'm in Hebrews 11:32. 32. 
where he's coming, he's finishing up this hall of fame of faith of telling about these biblical heroes of the past. He says, what more shall I say? Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So that's the passage. It's a beautiful passage. But remember, you see how there's, Lightfoot has quotation marks around in goat skins and sheep skins? In your translation, if you have the Lightfoot, there's no quotation marks in the Greek. Those are supplied by the translator. So it's not necessarily the fact that he's quoting Hebrews. I'm just saying... If Clement is the writer of Hebrews, he might just be using the same language again to refer to the prophets. That's all. So that's the, it's the prophets that we have in mind. It says, Let us be imitators of those who went about in goatskins and sheepskins, preaching the coming of Christ. And this accords with the teaching of Peter, who taught that all the prophets predicted the coming of the Messiah. Here's a quote for you from Acts chapter 3 teaching of Peter. Peter says, God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Difficult for us. It's difficult to drop in and read every prophet and say, okay, how did this prophet predict Peter's day? You know, how did this prophet predict the coming of Messiah? But the, the apostles understood these things. They understood how it worked. And the sages did too. So you have a, in Tractate Sanhedrin, it says, all the prophets who prophesied, prophesied only for the Messianic era. Prophesied only for the kingdom. He says, preaching the, the coming of Christ, we mean Elijah, and now he's going to give us some names, he's going to drop names. Elijah, Elisha, likewise Ezekiel, the prophets, and alongside them, those ancient men of renown as well, such as in Hebrews 11. For example, this is just for example, Abraham was greatly renowned and was called friend of God. Back to that again. We learned that last week, right? Or was it two weeks ago? The friend of God material. Yet when he looked intently at the glory of God, what did he say? He said, I am only dust and ashes. So what's his point? He said, Abraham, take Abraham for example. He's the greatest Spiritual, he's at the, as the greatest spiritual level. He's a complete tzaddik. He's, I mean, you can't, you can't touch Abraham, man of faith. You know how great he was? He was called God's friend. You don't just get, not, not everybody gets that title. You know, God's friend. You know, you might get prophet of God or something like that, but God's friend? What's, what's higher than God's friend? You know, a son of God or something, you know? <laughs> right? Just, it doesn't get much better than God's friend. God's next door neighbor. 
Yet, when he looked intently at the glory of God, when he had a, a pure vision, a higher vision of Hashem, he said, I'm only dust and ashes. Even in his greatness, in fact, because of his greatness, his spiritual greatness, he understood even better who he was and, and how he measured. Moreover, concerning Job, it's written, and Job was righteous and blameless, one who was true and who honored God and avoided all evil. And you have to accept that regarding Job. Otherwise, this, the book of Job doesn't really... You don't want to be on the side of his friends. You know, when you read the book of Job, a lot of times what his friends are saying sounds pretty good. Like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, Job, why didn't you listen to these guys, right? But that's not how you're supposed to be reading it. You're supposed to be reading it. You have the inside information. His friends don't. Because you read the beginning of Job where it says he was blameless and sinless, a total tzaddik. His friends are like, what is their line? Job, obviously you're a sinner because bad things are happening to you. If bad things are happening to you, that must mean that you deserve it. Now, why don't you just confess your sin and, you know, right? You know, his friends are clinging to these platitudes and this simple, this simplistic, oversimplistic theology that they've, they've grabbed onto Job. But Job is righteous and blameless. Anyway, uh, so Job is righteous and blameless, one who is true and honored by God and avoided all evil, yet he accuses himself, saying, no one is clean from stain. No, not even if his life lasts but for a day. And this is from Job 14. Moses was called faithful in all his house, which, by the way, is a passage that the writer of Hebrews quotes, right? So we saw that in Hebrews chapter 3. It's Numbers 12. And through his ministry, God judged Egypt with their plagues and the torments. But even he, though greatly glorified, and surely it doesn't get greater than Moses, the greatest prophet that ever lived, yet he did not boast, but he said, when an oracle was given to him at the bush, what did he say? He said, who am I that you should send me? It's the humility of Moses, the reluctant prophet, right? I have a feeble voice and a slow tongue. And again, he says, I am only steam from a pot. What? Where does he say, I am only steam from a pot? He doesn't. Nowhere in the Torah. Not in our Torah. So here, Clement has, he's got either an apocryphal source, a different Torah, you know, a different version, a midrash. Lots of places he could have possibly gotten this. Maybe, um, you know, any, any sort of Old Testament apocrypha that's attributed to Moses. But we don't know. Whatever, wherever he got this saying, we don't have it anymore. And this just goes to show, we'll see this several times over, as, as you're reading the apostles and as you're reading this kind of literature, you're always encountering this. Even the church fathers, you get into uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and other church fathers, they'll quote scriptures or versions of the scripture that just don't exist anymore. And what it shows us is that, you see, this is before there was such a thing as canonization. It's before there was such, you know, people didn't have bound Bibles, the books, you know. Of, I mean, there's just many, there, there were many writings, many sacred writings that they had. Some of them were held higher than others. Some of them were more universally accepted than others. But, but everything was a lot looser in those days than they are now. The apostles wouldn't know, like, they, they wouldn't know 
what to do with the seminary education that you get nowadays. It, it would just baffle them, you know how how we how we how we treat the Bible like um, you know like it's an algebra equations, you know proof texts and this sort of thing. Any questions on chapter seventeen? Do you think that I'm only stealing from a pot? That's saying he's full of hot air. No, 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 no. That's it. okay. All right. He's like, I'm only steam from a pot. Yeah. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle. Here is my spout. <laughs> right. Um, I'm only steam from a pot. The idea is it dissipates. You know, the steam comes out, and then it's like it's a vapor. It's like uh, it's like in Ecclesiastes where it says, "Vanity, vanity, all is vanity." You could translate that as vapor, vapor, all is vapor, quickly dissipating. So it says, I'm only steam from a pot. I'm, I'm here for a moment. You can see me for a moment and then I'm, I'm gone. I have no substance that's going to, no enduring substance. Like, like the grass that's here today, gone tomorrow. It's that kind of saying. So chapter 19. Accordingly, the humility and subordination of so many and such great men of renown have, through their obedience, improved not only us, but also the generations before us, and likewise those who have received his oracles in fear and truth. So again, these are great tzaddikim, these great men, these illustrious examples of all of them, if anyone had the right to be haughty and to carry themselves on with carry on with arrogance, it would be these men, but they were all examples of great humility. Seeing then that we have a share in many great and glorious deeds, let us hasten on to the goal of peace. What does it mean when he says, seeing then that we have a share in many great and glorious deeds? He's referring to their great and glorious deeds. He's talking about Abraham's great and glorious deeds. He's talking about Moses' great and glorious deeds, David's great and glorious deeds. How do we have a share in these great and glorious deeds? You see, Clement sees believers as the inheritors of the biblical legacy. Not Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentile believers as the inheritors of this biblical legacy. He says, we have a share in this, in this, in their in these great and glorious deeds. So let us hasten on to the goal of of peace. What's the goal of peace? Remember, we're going back, we're looping all the way back now several chapters to where he said, let's be seeking peace and not seeking, not, not just people who say they're seeking peace, but let's be people of, of real peace. We're hastening on to the goal of peace. This is peace in, in the congregation, peace in Corinth, peace in the Corinthian congregation. But the goal of peace is not just peace for peace's sake, but the goal of peace is the Messianic era, the era of peace. So when it says, let us hasten on to the goal of peace, we're pressing forward to attain the Messianic era. We're not working for peace in our midst just because it's more peaceful, <laughs> you know, which is a perk. That can be a perk that is more peaceful, but not necessarily not necessarily. Sometimes, in order for it to be more peaceful, it requires enormous suffering, long-suffering, enormous patience. Sometimes peace requires enormous sacrifice, right? I mean, in relationships and that sort of thing. So what's the point? In, in such cases, 
it might not seem like peace is worth the price. It's not just peacefulness that we're after. We're hastening on to the goal of peace. That is the Messianic era. So peacefulness is an expression of the kingdom. So let us hasten on to the goal of peace, which has been handed down to us from the beginning. What does it mean, handed down to us from the beginning? This refers to the gospel message, the announcement of the kingdom of heaven that's been handed down to us from the teaching of Yeshua and then handed down through the apostles. And I can give you an exact parallel in the book of Hebrews. Handed down to us from the beginning refers to the transmission of the gospel through the apostles, as it says in Hebrews 2.3, and it was spoken at the first, or at the beginning, it was, it was at the first spoken through the master, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So, spoken by Yeshua, handed down to us. So let us fix our eyes upon the Father and Maker of the whole world and hold fast to His magnificent and excellent gifts and benefits of peace. Let us see Him in our mind. Let us look with our eyes, look with the eyes of the soul on His patient will, practicing the presence of God. Let us see Him with our mind. Let us look with the eyes of the soul on God's patient will to have God ever before us. And let us note how free from anger he is toward all his creation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy these teachings, please share them with your friends and family and consider supporting us by clicking the donate tab at bethemmanuel.org.